Amen. You may be seated. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're looking at verse 10. And uh, I'll do just a little bit of review for those of you who are new with us as we deal with the topic of, of prophecy. We um, enumerated early on in our study on Tuesday that prophecy, which is really revelation, that's what it is. Prophecy is revelation from God, the revelation of God's word. And it has its origins. Does anyone know? In heaven, heaven is where God's word, his revelation, his will, his, his conception of things, his logic his purposes and decrees. We learned this in Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. For the believer, therefore, when we're talking about prophecy, we're talking about an event that happens from the top down. It's where God opens up the heavens and speaks to us. So we were dealing with this at a, from a linear level. We're talking about heaven speaking to us. Revelation being poured out into the heart of the people of God. This we saw in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, where Peter told us that uh, no prophecy of the scripture. And so you can't disassociate prophecy from scripture. Scripture is the um, codification or the codifying of God's prophetic revelation. That we'll talk about a bit more today, but where God speaks to us, he ultimately codifies it. And there is a process by which that happens. Heaven opens up and there are hearts that receive the prophecy and the hearts of those that receive that prophecy are called the hearts of holy men. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. And what I shared with you guys on Tuesday is this is really not about interpretation as much as it is about revelation or the word that we use was the word what? To loose, to loose or to release. Heaven is releasing Insight. Heaven is releasing revelation. It's not a matter of the prophets trying to understand what God said. It was about the prophets receiving what God said. So it's important to know. Um, you might find that in some of your other translations as well. Uh, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private or personal. The word private there is idios. One's own human reasoning. It's not the construct of sort of man's imagination or his ideas or his schemes, which will be some of the allegations raised against the Bible. The Bible is written by men and they would then assert that because they were written by men, that they are fallible and flawed and somehow uh, limited because they are the construct of human thinking. And what we would say is no. They were written by men, so that's a yes and no answer. It was written by men, but it was given by God. So we start with the linear reality that forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled. It's not argued in heaven. It's settled in heaven. It's not debated in heaven. It's established in heaven. It's not, it's not suspiciously hailed as a possibility in heaven. It is certified as being one with God himself. And when we, we think about that, we are understanding heaven has to open up for us to receive anything. We learned that in John chapter three. Remember verse 27, John the Baptist said a man can receive nothing except to be given to him from where? From heaven. And so this is one of the reasons we raise our hand in prayer. Praise God. 
from whom all blessings flow. I'm going to be talking about flow today in relationship to prophecy as well. But what we first acknowledge is that God is a first cause for everything. And heaven is the place which is the originator or the, the source for everything that's made and everything that's given to us comes from God in that regard. We affirm this in James chapter one, verse 17, just to kind of be doing recap. The Bible tells us every good and every perfect gift is from where? It's from above, right? And it comes from God the Father, who is the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So God is light and there's no darkness in him. That's the metaphor of him being the, um, the source of revelation. God is light the source of revelation. So the revelation came down and it came down to men as an illumination of God's will and purpose. So we would say revelation, illumination, and then ultimately communication. I'll get there in a moment. So the prophets received that word. Going back to um, Second <clears throat> uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 21, this is what Peter said was the kind of uh, instrumental and functional aspect of the receiving of that word for the prophecy. Notice the word again, prophecy, uh, prophetesos in the Greek for the prophecy came not in old time or ancient time by the will of man. You guys see that. In other words, the scriptures are the utterances are the declarations of truth as they come from the prophets were not a consequence of their own devices or their own uh, impulses or drives. They weren't speaking from the standpoint as I've got something to say. They really were in a lot of ways, a passive vehicle receiving a source for which they were compelled to share. We'll talk that through a bit more. So holy men of old, wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, not by the will of man, but holy men of old were moved. You see the term moved right there? That is a, a Greek verb means to bear up. I'm going to be talking about that a little bit more. Uh, for a nomai here, to pharos means to lift up and carry. It's the same Greek verb as the idea of Jesus having to bear his cross or when you and I are called to bear one another's burdens. So holy men of old were born up by the spirit of God in a very profoundly invasive way by which they now become the subjects of heavenly revelation. So it's important for you to get that. We're going to see it described by example in a moment. And they were moved by the spirit of God. So something is happening here. The source, heaven, is impacting the hearts of men. You can see that, right? They are being impacted in a way in which they are not negotiating what's going on as a dominant authoritative directive. They are passively submitting to a process of engagement with the spirit of God while the spirit of God is moving them in a direction to say what God wants them to say. This is critically important here as well. So they were moved by the spirit of God. We actually saw this in, uh, in the Acts account. I'll get back there. But um, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, we got this model uh, early on. And it's a perfect model because it becomes an example of how Jesus began his ministry by the outpouring of the Spirit. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went straightway up out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. Notice now the direction is from heaven downward. 
And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. So now something from heaven is coming down upon the Savior. This is going to be a constant pattern. The spirit of God is coming down. He's coming from an elevated place, a transcendent place. He's coming down. So now the subjects of this impartation now are being overcome by something. So it would be for Christ. Verse 17, we saw this on Tuesday and lower voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So now the father is speaking about the son and we gave this inner Trinitarian observation on uh, on on Tuesday that I want to once again share it with you when it comes to heaven revealing to the heart of the prophet all three persons are working the father is the one that's the source of the revelation that's given to the prophet by the spirit and the content or the topic of that revelation is the second person the Lord Jesus didn't I share that with you on Tuesday the father is the source the spirit is the the means by which the prophets receive that revelation. We're going to be seeing that more and more. But the content of the prophecy is about Jesus. It's from the father. It's through the spirit. But it's about the son. It's from the father. It's through the spirit. But it's about the son. That triune collaboration is critical when we're talking about God revealing uh, prophetic truth to us. And so um, we saw this uh, on um, <clears throat> on Tuesday in relationship to to the mechanism. I want to drive this home a, a little bit more as we're dealing with prophecy by by example. So I'm going to take you to some Old Testament passages so this can come home a little bit more. I'm going to start in the book of Numbers so we can see how this works. I'm going to be in Numbers chapter 11 and in Numbers 11, verse 17, God is going to tell Moses this is what he's going to do. And then we're going to see it in verse 25, verse 27 and 29. You're going to get a model of the outpouring of the spirit for the purpose of prophetic utterance modeled here 1500 years before Jesus. Notice what the text says. This is God talking to Moses. He says, and I will do what? Come down. So this is a descent, a transcendent move descending. I will come down and I will talk with thee there. Whenever God talks with us, that's revelation. I will come down and I will talk with thee. I will come down and I will talk with thee. So prophecy is God talking with us in other that we might in other in order that we might talk with others. And I will take of the spirit, which is upon you because Moses was a prophet. Right. And I will put it upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with thee that you may not bear it yourself alone. Now, this is the beginning of what I talked to you several months ago was what is called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are called the 70, the 70. You would have seen it's a few verses back, but I don't have time to go over it. So the 70 would have been the uh, ordained rulers that Jesus was dealing with in the days that Jesus was doing ministry. The Sanhedrin, the 70. So. Because Moses has complained to God that he can't bear all the people. They were really problematic to him. And God says, OK, I'm going to give the elders a portion of the spirit that I'm giving you. All of this is anthropomorphical because he's talking about giving of the spirit. If you get into an sort of equation type of mentality, you're going to miss the point. Verse uh, 25 now. What, no, we can go to verse 25. This is where it starts. And the Lord came down in a cloud. Now, remember, I told you whenever you're dealing with the movement of God, 
uh, and the Lord is doing something like descending or coming down. And particularly if he comes down in a cloud, because how did he go away in a cloud? Then the one coming down is who? None other than Jesus. He's the visible Yahweh. Y'all got that. The visible Yahweh is coming down. The issue is prophecy. What's going to happen now is the 70 elders are going to engage in collaborating with Moses to lead the people of God because they're complaining and, and, and they need to be heard from. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him, that is Moses, and took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the what? 70 elders. You got you to remember that because this here is your point of reference to the New Testament. So your New Testament is not an independent set of documents that's not tied to the Old Testament. They're totally tied together. So when you read your New Testament, it has a foundation in the Old Testament. That's where the 70 come in at, okay? And notice what it says, and gave it unto the 70, which means that's what God did. The Lord came down, spake unto him, took of his spirit that was upon Moses, and gave it unto the 70, and it came to pass when the spirit did what? When the spirit did what? Right. Now, what had happened in Matthew chapter three, verse 16? The spirit rested on Jesus. Did you guys see the language carefully? Take them back because they're here, but they're not watching. Matthew three sixteen. because I want you to see it. I want you to see how accurate the corollary is between the Old Testament and the new. Because I have to talk to you about the third person because we're talking about the ministry of him with the prophetic gift. We have to talk about what that means. Now, notice what it says. Um. Okay, so, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and doing what? Lighting upon him. That, that's a, a Greek term for the same thing as resting upon him, okay? Lighting upon him, resting upon him, descending and resting upon him. Go back to our text, please, uh, so we can uh, keep going. Numbers chapter 11, uh, verse 25, I believe that it was. There it is, there it is. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they did what? They prophesied. So you got to follow the clauses. I want you to get it because we got to work this through. This is a very technical uh, study here around uh, biblical prophecy. When the spirit rested upon them, when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not what? They did not stop. So something is happening here with these men, which had never happened before. There's an outpouring of the Spirit of God, intentional. Christ is doing it. The Spirit is resting upon them. Now they are qualified to actually speak divine revelation. You guys got that? So divine revelation is a consequence of the Spirit of God resting upon one and qualifying one to speak. A couple of questions we can now be, um, we can be curious to ask. I'm only going to ask a few because I want to keep moving for a moment. The question that we will ask now which we don't get the answer for here, is what was the content of their words? All right, that's a question you have to ask because we're going to be dealing with it in a moment. And the answer is this, you and I don't know because it wasn't for us. It was for the people at that time, okay? We might argue in a, in a sort of um, objective standpoint, we know that it was the word of God because we know the spirit of God was working. And the word of God is given to us by the spirit of God. And we know that it would have been about Christ. Ultimately, we know that because we learn, right? Revelation chapter 19, 19, verse 10, Revelation 19, 10. Some of us, you know it by heart, but here's what it says. The testimony of Jesus is the what of prophecy, the spirit of prophecy. 
Look at it. Revelation 19.10. I fell at his feet to worship him. He said unto me, see thou do it not. I am thy, of thy fellow servants and of thy brethren that have the what? Testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is what? So did the men in Numbers 11 have the spirit? Were they prophesying? What would have been the content of their prophecy? The testimony of Jesus. So this is how you ascertain a sort of biblical correlation of the subject at hand. They had the spirit, third person. They didn't manifested the gift. I'm going to talk about that here in a moment. We don't have the literal content of their words, but we have the summation of what the spirit does. He testifies of Jesus. That's how you know you have the spirit of God. If he's not testifying of Jesus, you don't have the spirit of God. It's important for you to know that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We're going to go into that much more here in a moment. So this is given in Numbers chapter 11, verse 25. I think there's one more portion there that I want us to see in that. Numbers 11, verse 29. Look at Numbers eleven twenty-nine. And Moses said unto him, because uh, Joshua and Caleb came and said a couple guys in the camp that are prophesying. Moses said unto them, envious thou for my sake, would God that all of the Lord's people were what? Would God that all of the Lord's people were what? Now, so stay with me now. Just look at me. Stay with me for a moment. What Moses said right there was in anticipation of what would happen in Acts chapter two, verse 17 and 18. There was a limited outpouring on 70 in Numbers 11, right? Joshua and Caleb are complaining about two brothers who had stayed in the camp upon whom the Holy Ghost had poured out on them. And they were prophesying in the camp and, and they want to kind of regulate those guys. And, and Moses says, I wish everybody was prophesying, not just the elders. I want everybody to prophesy. Is that what he said? And that's because he was anticipating a fuller outpouring of the spirit as is granted in Acts 2.17. Here's what it says. You and I need to see it. This is Acts 2.17 and 18. Peter is explaining it. It shall come to pass in the last days, said God, that I will pour out my spirit upon what? Was that not Moses' desire? Upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Verse 18, please. And on my servants and on my handmaids will I pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall what? Right. So right now what we know is we have the linear trajectory of the gift coming from heaven into the hearts of the people of God. And when the spirit rests on them, they are qualified to utter, qualified to speak qualified to declare. In the Old Testament, it was largely just the men, particularly at that point in Numbers 11. Here in the New Testament, it's men and women, is it not? Men and women. That's what the text says. It would broaden out. The idea would be that all of God's people would be qualified to proclaim God's word to men and women about Christ. Okay, it's important for you and I to capture that. What I want to do is keep walking through a little bit this... Um, this relationship between the outpouring of the spirit of God upon the hearts of the people uh, and how that begins to show up in communication or speaking. Uh, and, and actually, when we are talking about prophecy, we're talking about speaking. We're talking about proclaiming. We're talking about preaching. 
And we're talking about a process that I'm going to call flow. It actually comes from our Greek word, prophesio. I'll deal with that in a moment. And this has to do with the... Um, this has to do with the form of what's taking place. And the form of what's taking place is something I just want us to capture because this is really what's happening. They started to prophesy and they did not cease. Numbers chapter 11, right? All right, let's walk a few of these examples in the Old Testament up into the new and begin to work a little bit more on our second category, going from form to content. But what I want us to do now is go to 1 Samuel chapter 10, Verse six. This is 1 Samuel 10, 6. This will be the time when the first king of Israel will be identified with the prophets who are in the school of Samuel. Samuel is the last of the Old Testament judges. He's the first of the New Testament, uh, I mean, Old Testament prophets, official prophets. From him will become Elijah and Elisha. Now notice what it says. And the spirit of the Lord will come upon thee. This is Samuel talking to Saul. Go back to verse four, because I want to make sure I contextualize that for our class, just in case you guys don't know. So right now, here's what I want to make sure you do. Rein in your thoughts to this one idea. The spirit of God being poured upon a person for the purpose of prophecy. Don't go all over the place yet. The one idea I want you to get is the spirit of God being poured are descending upon, are coming upon a person for the purpose of prophecy. Nothing else right now. We just want to repeat that enough for you to understand the coming down, the, the, the invasion of the spirit of God and people now prophesying. OK, that's all I want you to get. You have to get this. Notice what it says. Um, this is Saul talking to Samuel. Go back to verse verse one, because I want to make sure you get this. Then Samuel took a vial of oil. And poured it upon the head, upon his head. This is Saul, King Saul, and kissed him and said, It is, is it not because the Lord hath anointed you to be captain over his inheritance? Saul is the first king of Israel. Verse 11. When you are departed from me today, then you shall find two men by Rachel's sepulchre in the border of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say unto thee, The asses which you are, which you went, went to seek are found, and lo, your father hath left. The care of the asses and sorrow uh, and and sour sour for you, saying, "What shall I do for my son?" He, his dad was wondering where 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 Saul was. So Saul is out looking for his father's asses. We've we've talked about the significance of that. We can get into that later. Verse four, uh, verse three. Then shall you go on forward from this, and you shall come to the plain of Tabor, that is the plain of Might, and there you shall meet three men going up to God to Bethel. Bethel is where. The, t- the tent of glory was where the Ark of the Covenant was, one carrying three kids and another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a bottle of wine. So three loaves of bread, three kids and a bottle of wine for sacrifice. They're going to worship God. Look at verse four. And they will salute you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive of their hand. So they're going to honor Saul for being king. Okay. Okay. They're going to honor Saul for being king. The next verse. And that thou shalt come to the hill of God. After that, you shall come to the hill of God. So he's going to follow them. Where is the garrison of the Philistines? And it shall come to pass when you are come thither to the city that you shall meet a company of what? Coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a tabret and a pipe and a harp and before them and they shall what? All right, so here's, a, here's an additional piece of information that is already in your outline and it's going to come up in a moment. Prophecy is always in conjunction with worship 
and worship in conjunction with music, okay? Prophecy and worship, worship and music, that's why they have harps here. We're going to see that again. In other words, worship in the context of music and singing must never be Bible-less. It must never be apart from the word. There's no such thing as true worship of God, no matter how good the music may be, if the lyrics are unbiblical. If the lyrics are anti-theological, if they are not scriptural, if they're not sound, if they're not God-glorifying, if they're not Christocentric, if they're not faithful to the true claims of scripture, it is not true worship. Does that make some sense? The music can be, it can be great music. It can touch you on all kinds of levels emotionally. But if the theological content of the propositions of the words are not right, it is not true worship. We'll get back there in a moment. So notice what it says, and they shall prophesy. Then verse 6, 1 Samuel 10, 6. And the spirit of the Lord will do what? Come upon you, and you shall what? Prophesy with them, and you shall be turned into another man. Now what this does is gives you kind of an insight to the dynamic. You can use the term dynamic of the spirit of God as it comes down upon them and brings them into the sphere of prophetic utterance. Saul is told that when he joins the company of these prophets, the spirit of God is going to come down as he must and is going to seize Saul and Saul is going to engage in prophesying. That's what it says, right? That's exactly what's going to happen here. Verse seven. And let it be when these what? I want you to see that because Paul is going to explain that in first Corinthians chapter four. OK, and let it be that when these signs are come unto thee, that you do as occasion serve thee for God is what with you. Verse eight. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall tarry till I come with you and show thee what you shall do. Verse nine, first Samuel 10, nine. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart and all these signs began to come to pass. So Saul had also received the spirit of God. And we got to talk about what that means here in a moment. He received the spirit of God for the purpose of demonstrating a sign. Verse 10. And when they came thither to the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him and the spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. Now, Saul is just He was just a regular civilian going about his business. He's being called to be the king. But before he can exercise his duties as a king, he has to prove himself to be a worshiper of God. You guys see that? He has to prove himself to be a worshiper of God. So he's being dragged in providentially into an event of which he is made subject to as a sign that God is with him. Okay, I want you guys to get that. We'll be able to take this apart in a little bit. Verse 11. And it came to pass when all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, what is this that has come unto the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the what? Now he's having a reputation of being among the prophets when before time he wasn't. So now what the event is doing is showing you that there is going to be a distinction 
of expression when a person actually receives the spirit of God that is going to constitute a sign to others that whereas before there was no evidence of any kind of visible union or communion with God and later on there was. Now all of a sudden Saul is being known to be among the prophets of God. That would be like a person who has not participated in church and then all of a sudden is in church and brought into the fear of the spirit of God and is learning biblical doctrine. And the next thing you know, they're talking like Christians and, and singing like Christians and performing like Christians. Does that make some sense? It's important for you to know this mechanism. And, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment. But if you look at verse 12, here it is. And one of the same place answered and said, but who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the what? Right. Great question, not to be answered in the affirmative because you got a long way to go to find out that this was just what we call many, many times a kind of sign and wonder. This was a temporary show in the flesh. This was an appearance of godliness, but it didn't constitute reality. Did that make some sense? Right. We know that biblically because later on he uh, he seeks out the witch of indoor. He abandons God. He rebels against God. So what was this that happened that he seized by the spirit of God? He's prophesying among the prophets. What is he doing? He's a sign. OK, and it's important for you to, to know that going forward. OK, so the external manifestation of the spirit has a sign element to it that you and I need to be careful to distinguish between a sign and the substance or the reality or true content or authentic Christianity. Because you and I can do signs and wonders as we learned before and still not be saved. Matthew seven twenty two through 24. Didn't I teach you that? So you and I want to make sure that we make a distinction between signs and reality. The sign has to be there, but there has to be more than the sign. Okay. so the question is, is Saul among the what? Prophets. I want you to capture that. Is Saul among the prophets? That would be the question you would ask about a person that's coming into the gospel. And for a while, they seem to be interested in the things of God and may be inquiring and may be asking and they may have even grown up learning the Bible, as many of my kids did and many of yours. And they may be able to quote scripture. You're still asking the question, are they among the prophets? And you don't get an answer until you can know that it goes from a sign to it being a lifestyle of absolute commitment to God. Did that make some sense? It's important for you to know that. OK, because what we know about Saul is he never prophesies again after this. He goes from bad to worse. Now, you can ask, why did God do that? Because God is teaching us something about what it means to operate in the messianic gifts. Prophecy is a messianic gift. To be a king is a messianic gift. To be a prophet is a messianic gift. So Saul would have had to have the same anointing for his kingship that Samuel would have had for his prophetic office that the high priest would have for his office as a priest because prophet, priest, and king are the three major offices of Messiah. Did that make some sense, ladies and gentlemen? Please get that. Please get it because otherwise you won't be able to distinguish when 
God is allowing a a temporary event to model something that should have lasting significance, but in every case it does not. For instance, just to drill this home as we move on, Jesus called 12 disciples. 11 of them continued. They were authentically born again, legitimate believers, except one. You see what I'm getting at? So making a distinction between a person who shows an external outward sign of religion versus someone who also has the internal integrity of a real vital relationship with God is all about consistency and continuity. A person can run for a while and be very zealous about God. And then a few years later or what have you drift off and act as if they've never had that encounter whatsoever. And we can talk about that as we deal with the categories. I told you there were sign gifts, there were salvation gifts and there were sanctification gifts. Please remember, anytime we're simply dealing with sign gifts, sign gifts are no indication that a person is necessarily saved. Did you hear what I just stated? If it's a sign gift, it is no indication that a person is necessarily saved. It's just a sign. That's why I quoted to you Matthew 7, 22 through 24, because in that day they shall say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out devils? Did we not preach? Did we not heal? Did we not prophesy in your name? And he will say, I never what? Right. So please understand to bear the sign is simply to be sub objected to a process that God consistently uses, that process will always take place. There will always be, um, there will always be, always be communities of the prophets. There will be places where the people of God who know God and know his revelation and are partakers of the divine nature, these will be people who know scripture. These will be people who sing the praises of God. These will be people who worship God. You guys keeping up with me? No matter how small the community or how large, all over the world, God has never left himself without a witness. I want to drive that home. So like you'll never go anywhere on the planet and God not have one or two other people who are also worshipers of God who don't also bear the signs that I'm talking about. And then you will join that community. You will join that community because that's what we do. Did that make some sense? I mean, unless you found out that that community is only a show in the flesh. This is what we call King Saul, a show in the flesh. He was a sign and wonder, a show in the flesh. He was not the real deal. So you will go to some churches where they are a show in the flesh. They have a form of godliness and they will have outward piety, but it will be absent of a real authentic commitment to the true and the living God. Does that make sense? All right, good. So it's important for us to capture that. Let me see. I want to continue walking through this example so that we can see it again. So this is going to come up in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 19, uh, verse 20. 1 Samuel 19, verse 20. Uh, And notice what it says. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets, what were they doing? And Samuel standing... As appointed over them, the spirit of God was upon the messengers of who? Saul. And they also what? So so I really want you to get this because something is happening that we will call the ministry of the spirit. Where he is acting sovereignly in the midst of events and expressing himself. The spirit of God is acting sovereignly in the midst of an event and expressing himself. 
That's important for you to know. So Saul is already attacking David, is he not? And here comes the prophets prophesying and the spirit of God jumps on Saul's servants. And now they what? Prophesy. Y'all got that? So what we're dealing with is an outward modality, an outward expression of the sovereignty of God and his spirit seizing people, making them say what God wants them to say. Did y'all get that? Now stay with me because I'm already setting you up for Balaam. You guys know that. Some of you guys already know I'm setting you up for Balaam, right? Balaam is going to say a lot of wonderful things about God, is he not? And all that is, is an indication of God's sovereignty to put God's words in his mouth. Literally, that's what it says. And God put a word in Balaam's mouth. Okay, this is what I've been teaching you about sovereignty, right? And this is what we're getting ready to learn now about it as well. Let me see if I can press this home a little bit more. First Samuel chapter 19, verse 20, first Samuel 19, 23. Look at verse 23. And he went thither to Naoth and to Ramah, and the spirit of the Lord was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth of Ramah. Who was the he here? Saul. This is really interesting because there's a whole event behind this. And the event is that Saul is seeking to kill David because David is the next king in line. And Saul is now being seized by the spirit of God. And God is showing Saul that he's sovereign over him, that he cannot kill David. Now, what's really interesting is what I asked you guys earlier that you and I have not been able to elicit from these events. Do you know what that is? We know they all were prophesying. We don't have the content. And that's on purpose. Because in this event, the content doesn't matter to you. The only thing that matters is the form or the expression. Okay, so up here I have form, content, and then impact. So you and I are now looking at the form of the expression of the Spirit of God. Coming down, seizing them, and then prophesying, right? A little earlier, I showed you that when the sons of the prophets came along where Saul was initially in chapter 10. They had musical instruments. That's what you do in worship. I also showed you that they had calves and goats and wine and bread. That's what you do in worship because you're going to offer sacrifices, right? So stay with me because you guys are going to be able to put together what it means to be spirit-filled here. Okay, spirit-filled are people who are regulated by the presence of God in their life. And they are commonly worshipers of God. They commonly offer sacrifices. They commonly sing praises unto God. That's what we all do who are true believers. Am I making some sense? So we're going to see that here in a moment with, with, uh, with, with the musical worship of David. So what's happening now is God is actually building Israel up into a monarchy he has to remove King Saul because King Saul's a sign and a wonder. He's a lying sign and wonder. And he's going to put his real man in there, King David, because it's the Judite kings that's going to lead to Jesus, not the Benjamite king. Saul is a Benjamite. David is a Judite. It's out of Judah the scepter will come, as Balaam will tell us. And so what we see is the spirit of God sovereignly using this man. But because this man is not a true believer, nothing of what he's saying will last. More than that, when God sovereignly seizes Saul and others, 
It's in order for God to control them so that they can't do what they otherwise would do. And that is kill God's people. Did that make some sense? I'm going to say it again. Otherwise, Balaam will make no sense to you because you came out on Friday. I'm going to bless you. Balaam was a hellbound prophet from the beginning. He never knew God. He was God's chief adversary. And so God is going to be Balaam's adversary, is he not? And Balaam will end up being killed in war right along with Balak. Y'all know that? And that being the case, Balaam couldn't have been a true prophet of God because a true prophet of God would have never attacked the people of God. No matter how good they sound in the flesh. So I want you to make make sure you get that. So but God is still going to use Balaam to speak, is he not? And he's going to say some wonderful things about Israel and about Messiah that many of the other prophets did not say. And yet his heart is still evil and inclined to wickedness and is controlled by the devil. And he must ultimately perish. These are the tensions and contradictions in scripture to help you and I ask the question, when is the spirit of God operating in ministry? And when is the spirit of God operating in salvation? So you need to categorize it. I'm helping. Now, I talked about this many years ago, but I want you to categorize it now because to simply see the spirit of God operating in ministry is not to see whether or not the spirit of God is using people who are truly saved. He's just using people. To see the spirit of God in salvation is see the spirit of God sanctify the heart root and ground men and women, grow them up in Christ, demonstrate their consistency in Jesus, their ability to suffer and go through struggles and go through trials and then fall and get back up again. Like King David was sanctified. Did that make some sense? David was a real believer. Saul was a fake believer. Both of them could say to some degree they had the spirit of God in some kind of way. Saul had it in a way of ministry. David had a way in a, in a way of salvation, did he not? This is why David could say in Psalm 51, take not thy Holy Spirit away from me, right? What he meant was, I need your spirit to maintain my capacity to serve you as a king. He wasn't saying, don't take my salvation away. He was saying, don't take my anointing away. I need your spirit. If I'm going to lead your people, I need your spirit. That makes sense, right? Right. Because remember, to be a king is a foreshadow of the Messiah ministry. To be a priest is a foreshadow of the Messiah ministry. To be a prophet is a foreshadow of the Messiah ministry. If I'm going to prophesy, I need the spirit of Christ. If I'm going to be a leader, I need the spirit of Christ. If I'm going to stand in the gap as a priest, I need the spirit of Christ, right? Christ is prophet, priest, and what? Y'all got that now, right? So it's, it's important to know. All right, so a few more passages. I want to drill down into this a little bit more. Hope you're not being bored. Uh, Jeremiah chapter one. I want to get into, um, I want to get into form to content. From heaven to where? The heart, okay? The heart of the prophet. I want us to go from heaven to the heart of the prophet. We've already looked at several passages around from heaven down, have we not? Heaven comes down, the spirit of God seizes, they prophesy. It's going to either be just in a general prophetic scenario or it's going to be in worship or in sacrifice. That's always the case. 
The people of God are called and made and qualified to worship. The hour is coming when those that worship God will worship him how? In spirit and how? In the truth of the word of God. Very important for us to know that. So notice what it says. The word of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the what? Priests that were in Hananoth in the land of Benjamin. Just for your knowledge, so you can, you know, say I do profit from study with PJ. Jeremiah is both a prophet and a priest. He's in the line of the priest, just like Ezekiel. That means he's carrying two offices of who? Messiah. Only one more office. And what is that? King. Y'all got that? Excellent. So notice what it says in verse two. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, the 13th year of his reign. Verse three. And it also came to pass in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth year. I love this. What we have about Jeremiah is his whole ministry warned Israel and he saw them go into captivity. He warned them that it was coming. They didn't believe and he watched them go into captivity. Verse four, verse four. Now we're going to slow down and watch the heavenward down, go into the inner penetration of the prophetic spirit into the heart of a person because it's important that it lands on the heart because it's got to actually come out of the mouth because people got to hear it. Did that make sense? Heaven, heart, hearing, right? Out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth was. So it's got to go from heaven into the heart. This is what we're going to talk about now just so you can capture it. Then the word of the Lord came unto me saying... Verse five, before I formed you in the belly, I knew thee. What do we call that theologically? Election. Before I formed you in the belly, I what? I knew thee. Well, he knows everybody, but he had chosen Jeremiah. Right. And before you came forth out of the womb, I what? Sanctified you. I set you apart. Well, that's what election is, to be set apart unto salvation. Okay. That's again, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Before I knew you, I, uh, before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. Before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you and I ordained you to be a prophet of the nations. Verse six. Then said I, ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot what? Because I am a what? Right. So here he understands that he doesn't have the personal qualifications to be a prophet because a prophet is one who speaks for God. So the first thing that Jeremiah is saying is, I don't have the credentials to do what you're calling me to do. And this is one of the ways you can know the difference between a false prophet and a true prophet. A false prophet is someone that builds themselves up, qualifies themselves and uses their own carnal human strength. A true prophet is qualified by God to speak for God. And he knows and they know of themselves they can do nothing without God. Also, he's given a proper estimation of his own character because he's saying he's a child. That means he has no experience, no maturity, no no kind of uh, preconditioned capacity to do what God is calling him to do. And that's going to be fine because notice what verse seven says. Verse seven says, but the Lord said unto me, say not that I am a child. That is to say, do not disqualify yourself on the grounds of the fact that you don't qualify. For you shall go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, you shall what? 
Right. So this here is the, the this here is the grounds of the relationship between Jeremiah and God. Jeremiah tells God, I can't speak. I don't have the capacity. God says, you're going to speak everything I tell you. That's that's the relationship. Hierarchically, God is saying you're going to do what I'm telling you to do, because the next verse is going to say, because I'm going to put my words in your mouth. You guys got that? Look at the next verse. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, saith the Lord. Verse nine. Then the Lord put forth his hand. Now, who is that touching Jeremiah if we're using anthropomorphism? It's Jesus. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It's written of me, right? So the second person, the visible Yahweh, is actually now engaging Jeremiah. Jesus is touching Jeremiah. Jesus is doing 600 years before he showed up what Jesus did all through his ministry. Touched people. Didn't he? This is the same Jesus. Listen to what it says. And he touched my mouth and the Lord said unto me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. You got it? So it goes from heaven. The revelation of God's prophetic content has to go into the heart so that the heart now receives it by way of revelation and illumination so that it can speak because faith only comes by what? And hearing by the word of God. So someone has to speak. How shall they hear without a preacher? Right, so prophetically what we're dealing with are the mechanisms that go from the form to the content. The content is God's word. I am going to put my word in your heart. And that is the real, um, what we would call efficacious mechanism. The efficacy of prophecy is that God puts his word in us and then that word now has to come out of us and go to the nations. Notice what he says. I have put my words in your mouth. This is extremely important for us to get. Now, let's go back to, um, go forward to Ezekiel chapter two, verse one. I want to pick this up again because I'm almost done with this part. Ezekiel two, one. And you guys remember this because I want to talk now more about the intimacy of the word being put in them. I have put my word in your mouth. We saw God say that. We saw Christ say that to Jeremiah. Now we're going to look at the sort of Uh, tangible content of that word. What form is that word being put in him? He said unto me, son of man, stand upon your feet and I will speak unto you. Verse two. And the spirit of God entered into me when he spake unto me. So you see again, the third person is always present when they're speaking being done. And the spirit of God entered into me when he spake unto me. He set me upon my feet that I heard him that spake unto me. So one of the qualifications of being a prophet is that you must be able to hear God. How can you speak for God if you can't hear from God? See what I'm saying? So uh, Ezekiel, just like Jeremiah, is in this close proximity of a spiritual dynamic where God is communicating to Ezekiel, communicating to Jeremiah in a profoundly intimate and dynamic way. This is going to pre-qualify them to say, thus saith the Lord. We could do a lot of practical application here. Verse three. And he said unto me, son of man, I send you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me, they and their fathers, and they have transgressed against me. What is God doing with uh, Ezekiel? He's giving Ezekiel data, information. He's informing Ezekiel about the character of the people that he's going to do ministry to. 
right? He's giving him a dossier of their attitude, character, and encourageableness. He's letting them know, just like he let Jeremiah know, these people are rebellious. Never mind that. Still go to them. That really is God's mercy to you and me, do you think? And here's the reason why. If God only came to you and me because we were obedient, then none of us would hear from God. That'll come home in about 10 seconds. If God waited until you were obedient, he would never come to us. Am I making some sense? Now, now Ezekiel, Jeremiah, listen, you go into rebellious people, hard-headed sinners, stubborn, obstreperous sinners. Speak to them anyway. So what is God going to do? He's going to overcome their rebellion because he has to. Right. He has to overcome their rebellion like he has to overcome your rebellion and mine. You know, he has to speak anyway. Right. And so this is very important. So let me see if I can move on to the portion of the Ezekiel text that we were dealing with before that I think is going to help us look at verse eight through ten. Ezekiel uh, two, eight through ten. So now notice what it is. But son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Do not be be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat that I give thee. So now the metaphor is that of Ezekiel, as well as Jeremiah, as well as John the Apostle, opening up his mouth to receive the word. This here is a sense of submission for the purpose of ingesting truth. Does that make some sense? Right. And and you know, this here gets into really the faculty of commitment to God's word at the practical level. Like a man can read the Bible and not actually be opening the mouth of his soul. You can just read it as a average book with data and information and not absorb it as something that has profound significance and uh, relevance for your own life. Does that make some sense? Right. And this is where a lot of people are. And therefore, the Bible means nothing. Okay, unless there is a kind of commitment to imbibe it. And, you know, there is a level of faith that is required therein. Right. All right. So I'll use the analogy and go on. So you go to a restaurant and you're going to sit down and have a meal. And do you know how many factors go into the liability of that plate you're about to eat? Do you understand how many factors go into the potential calamity of the food you're about to eat? Do you understand that? Do you understand that that food you're about to eat requires a level of faith on your part that's fairly remarkable? (laughs) Would you agree with that? I mean, if you and I really thought about the people in the kitchen before we went into that restaurant, we probably would not. Right? And then it becomes reasonable to us when 1 Timothy 4 shows up, everything is to be received with thanksgiving and prayer because it's sanctified by the word of God. Oh, okay, I'm going to eat it because I'm praying about it. Lord, make sure nothing in this food hurts me or harms me, right? Because there's all kinds of biological, sociological uh, uh, variables that could play into you and I getting sick. I got a sister somewhere around here that's just overcoming food poisoning and it can happen to us anytime. It has happened all around the world, has it not? By just one person's lack of care and concern about the process and mechanism of feeding people. Yet we have to do it. 
So it is with receiving God's word. So it is with receiving God's word. Verse nine. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent to me and a roll that is a scroll of a book was therein. Verse 10. And he spread it before me. So now the book that he is about to take and eat is now opened up the spread. What that means is it's being illuminated to him because the scroll had content on its pariah, uh, pariah. It had content on the scrolls, whether it's goat skins or sheep skins or whatever. And until you opened it up, you didn't see its contents. So Ezekiel is going to see the content of the word so that he sees it with his eyes before he metaphorically consumes it or ingests it in his body. He spread it before me. It was written within and without, and there was written therein lamentations, mornings, and what? Right. That is the nature and character of the prophetic word. Let me see if I can drop this on you and we'll 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 um, we'll go further. But we are at content. So we certainly we certainly might as well deal with the content. So the content in its um, in its cosmic uh, nature is the word of God. The content is the word of God. Now we're going to get into the characteristics of the word of God, because here what Ezekiel is receiving as the word of God are really judgments. Notice what it says. And there was written therein lamentations and mournings and woes. The whole of the scroll was God's indictment against Israel. It was precept upon precept, line upon line, about every time that they had rebelled and committed infractions against Torah. They violated worship. They violated the Sabbath. They violated the sacrifices. They offered up to idols. They engaged in adultery and fornication and all kinds of other base and vile things. And God had all that written down. You got that? This again, this here is what we call a legal case against God's adulterous wife called Israel. So the role of the prophets were like lawyers. Their jobs were to go to the people, open up the scroll and show the people where God has indicted them for the crimes that they've committed. Does that make some sense? Now you and I can understand. Um, look, let me see here. Is there a verse 11 here? Ezekiel 10, 11. Um, OK, yeah, I'll use this one. Verse one, two and three of chapter three. Moreover, he said unto me, son of man, eat that thou findest. Eat this roll and go speak to the house of Israel. Verse two. So I opened my mouth and he calls me to what? Right. So even the actual eating of the roll was a combination of God gracing Ezekiel to do it because he's being honest. God had to cause him to eat it. Now, we can work that through in this sense. Receiving the word of God, which is what James says in James chapter one, around verse 25 or so. Receive the engrafted word of God that you that you might grow thereby. Receiving the engrafted word of God takes the grace of God. Like human beings naturally do not really take God's word that seriously. And what Ezekiel is saying is God had to help him eat the scroll. He had to help him eat the scroll. Notice what verse three says. We're going to touch on this a little bit more. And he said unto me, son of man, cause thy belly to eat it. In other words, take it all the way in and fill thy belly with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it and it was in my mouth as honey for what? Right. So it tasted good while going in. It tasted good while going in. Verse four. 
And he said unto me, Cinnamon, go, get thee unto the house of Israel and speak my words unto them. So he's qualified to speak now, right? He's qualified to speak. This is Ezekiel. Jeremiah says the same thing. Jeremiah 15, 16. Jeremiah 15, 16. I'm I'm taking you now back to Revelation 10, where we were on Tuesday. And and John is going to give you the same experience. And then he's going to tell you the bitter side of the prophetic calling. This is Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found. This is what Jeremiah says. And I did what? Right. So this here here is when people delight in God and they delight in knowing God and delight in wanting to fellowship with God and they find God's word, metaphorically speaking, delicious. Something healthy for them. Something digestible that's good for their spiritual welfare. Obviously, the proverb puts it this way. It is health to thy belly and uh, life, life to thy navel, health to thy navel, navel and marrow to thy bone, the word of God. It is healthy to our bodies, it's healthy to our souls, it's healthy to our minds. I believe that for me, 63 years, it's been the case. Thy words were found, I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my what? For I am called by the name, by thy name, O Lord, God of hosts. Now notice Jeremiah's rejoicing in God's word, right? Is he rejoicing? That's chapter 15. Chapter 20, you know what he says? God, you deceived me. I'm done talking to these people. I don't want no more of your word because there's a bitterness to it. You already saw the morning's lamentations and woes that, that Ezekiel had, right? Now, Revelation chapter 10 is going to once again uh, remind us of this, 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 this kind of uh, sort of tension and, 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 and paradox of the joy, but also the sorrow of divine truth that, um, that comes to us. This is going to be Revelation chapter 10, where we are dealing with, um, with John the apostle receiving that word. You and I saw that last time, Revelation chapter 10, verse 9 through 11. Revelation 10, verse 9, please. Notice what it says, and I want to walk this through. We're almost done, but I want you to capture this. And I went unto the angel, said to him, give me the little book. And he said unto me, take it and eat it up, and it shall make your, make your belly what? But it shall be what in your mouth? So he has the same consistent palate experience that Jeremiah did. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and they were the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Ezekiel had a sweetness in his mouth, did he not? And, and didn't David say in the psalm several times, your word is sweeter than honey, than honey in the honeycomb? Did he not? And is that not your experience in mine? It is. But there's a bitter element to God's word. There's a bitter element, and this is what he says. But it will be bitter in your belly. Verse 10. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth, sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, My belly was what? And here's the reason why. John has to speak to the same people that Jesus had to speak to, that Isaiah had to speak to, that Jeremiah had to speak to, and that was a rebellious house. When you preach the word of God to the world and you tell men and women that there's one true and living God and that except they bow the knee to him and serve him as king and Lord, they will perish in their sins That is not a tolerable message. It was not tolerable to Israel. It's not tolerable to the Gentiles. You guys do know that. 
The words of God are offensive to humanity until God grants humanity the ability to submit to the fact that they are sinners in need of a redeemer. Does that make some sense? That being the case, what you begin to recognize is even though God is a joy to you, that joy is altered and modified when you go to share that joy with your friends and with your loved ones. Once you go to share it with your loved ones, you find it to be bitter. Yeah, tell the truth. You find the word to be bitter. And this is where Jesus said in the parable of the four soils, he said in the parable of the, uh, of the um, thorny ground here that the word went in and was choked because of the cares of this life and because of tribulation. So we like the word when it's, you know, talking about our salvation and God's mercy and goodness to us and, and all that. But when it's calling us to hard things, we don't want to hear God's word. And one of the most difficult things that you and I have to deal with is telling people we love that this is what the book says and they don't want to hear it. Does that make sense? Now, there's only one other category of people that we have a difficult time with. Go with me now to 1 Corinthians 14. I want to just do a little bit of tab before we go, go into Q&A on this. And obviously, we're going to pick this up later. Um, there's only one other, in my experience, there's only one other category of people that I find is the most uh, challenging and, and encourageable. Encourageable, meaning not capable of winning them to the pleasure of God's truth. And that's religious people. The differences are slight, but they're there. And, and, we, and you and I need to be careful about that because we can sit on that lazy Sally. Does anybody know what a lazy Sally is? Raise your hand if you know what a lazy Sally is. Lazy Sully? Susie? I'm sorry, Sally. I, Sally, I am sorry. Do you, do, Sally, I am sorry. It's Susie. Does, uh, does anybody know what a lazy Susie is? All right. So imagine yourself sitting on a lazy Sully, uh, Susie. Can you imagine yourself there? You, you are the content on that, on that, that lazy uh, Susie. And you're going in circles. Sometimes you're good and sometimes you're bad. Sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes the word of God meets you in a positive way and sometimes it meets you in a negative way. Sometimes you're on the dark side of biblical truth in this conflict and sometimes you're on the light side. I know you didn't like it, it's just the truth. Am I telling the truth, bro? Right. So sometimes you and I are that oppositional party that don't like it when truth is told to us. You don't like it. Like you, you shouldn't have to deal with the woes and lamentations, but you do. See what I'm getting at? Right. And so sometimes um, uh, the most difficult thing is for either us to receive a true claim that cuts through our assumption and our views and, 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 and probably if we are on the positive side of that Susie and we're dishing out that truth, what's even more painful is when we have to share the truth with people that we really love and they are extremely hostile to it. And that's what Jesus plainly said. No one can be my disciple who is not willing to forsake mother and father and sister and brother and husband and wife and even children for my sake. Because he knew how divisive truth could be. Did you guys get that? So this is what we're dealing with in this regard. 
So um, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is going to give us some hierarchical principles. Before we take a break, I really should actually deal with one more category under the modes of prophecy. But I'll open up the floor for some questions and comments here in a moment. I know you guys have them about a lot of things in general. But here's what Paul does. Paul lays out what we call in um, the... Uh, the order and structure of 1 Corinthians 14, CEO, clarity, edification, and order. So all churches should be operating out of those three categories. Clarity first. Clarity first. And then edification as a consequence of clarity. Edification. And as a consequence of clarity and edification, there should be order in the church. Does that make sense? Clarity, edification, or the CEO of chapter 14 is the way that Paul now begins to deal with the gifts. And he's going to deal with largely two gifts, the gifts of prophecy and the gifts of tongue. We're headed to that in our studies on the next Tuesday, next Friday. But what I wanted to talk about right now a little bit more, even though we've got to pick it up again on Monday as we go a bit deeper into prophecy, because <clears throat> we have to. Um, here's what Paul is going to do. He's going to give a preference. This is what your first point said. A preferred and prominent gift in the scriptures is the gift of prophecy. It's a preferred and prominent gift because prophecy has the capacity of bringing clarity to people about what God is up to. And the most important thing to help people be edified is clarity. So this is how he's going to put it. We're going to just kind of walk this through a bit here in our outline so that we can see it. First um, Corinthians chapter 14. Let's start at verse one. Follow after chatter, charity and desire spiritual things, gifts in the italicis, but spiritual things, but rather that you what? All right, again, you know, I don't want to have to always uh, apologize for Greek grammar, but Greek grammar indicates one more time, just like in the Hebrew, that the, the syntactical structure of the Greek and the Hebrew means that Hebrew-speaking people, Aramaic-speaking people, Greek-speaking people don't think syntactically the way we do. So when you write the grammar out, it doesn't always come out clear. Does that make some sense? Like you're looking at three clauses here. The first clause is follow after charity. Do you guys see that? The second clause is desire spiritual things, right? And then he goes, but I would rather that you prophesy as if that third category is disqualifying the first two. It's not. It's, it's creating a hierarchy of motive, first motive, then desire, and then preference. Motive, walk in love. Desire, pursue spiritual things. That would make sense. Don't pursue carnal things. Pursue heavenly things over earthly things. Does that make sense? But the reason why I say that the, the way the, the Greeks and the Hebrews were thinking at that time is that what, what Paul is doing is he's dealing with an issue that's already brought up. So he doesn't have to clarify what I consider a very contracted statement. This is what the statement is saying. I know you guys are all jazzed about speaking in tongues and healings and sign gifts. But really, you need to be committed more to love and to things that grant a greater spiritual understanding. Thus, I rather that you learn the gift of prophecy. Did that make some sense? Did that make some sense? 
right? Because that's the premise upon which he's going to say, your being enamored with speaking glossolalia is not helping you or helping anyone. So here's how he's going to walk this through. He says in verse two, these words. For he that speaks in a tongue unknown is in italicis and the Greek grammar is not is not is not unknown. It's not even there. He that speaketh in a tongue. That's what it literally is saying. Okay, he that speaks in a tongue speaks not unto men, but unto who? For no man understands him, howbeit in the spirit he is speaking mysteries. So we'll get back to that later when we get into glossolalia, our, our speaking in tongues. What he's saying is, when you hear somebody speak in a language, and let's say that language is foreign to you, that person is not speaking to you because you don't know that language. It's completely useless to you. Did that make some sense? So whenever one is adopting to embrace glossolalia or lalean or gloss to language, to speak, to utter, if they're not seeking to understand the thing that they are uttering and to seek that the others that are listening to them understand the things that they're uttering, this is a useless gift. At best, it's only useful to them, which I'm going to argue next week, as you guys know, I always do. If you are seeking a gift for your own consumption, it's not charity and it's not spiritual. Does that make some sense? And this is why Paul is going to call them childish. But we'll get to that later. I just want to walk into the idea of preferencing prophecy. Verse three. But the one that what? Prophesies speaketh unto who? Unto what? Edification, exhortation and comfort. There it is. So when Paul says, I would much rather that you guys have the gifts of prophecy because now you're speaking to each other. And now you can actually build each other up and now you can encourage each other and now you can comfort. I mean, you know, think about it. Uh, We can't even hardly do that with English words. (laughs) If we could regulate English words to where we are edifying people, exhorting people and comforting people, that would be a beautiful exercise of the English language, wouldn't it? Of course, it's not disqualified because what we're talking about is prophesying. And so the idea would be that you and I would take our gift of English language, subsume it up under the framework of biblical scripture and let biblical scripture form and shape the way we talk so we can encourage and exhort and build people up. That would be what the scriptures are calling biblical prophecy at the edifying level. That makes sense, right? Let's keep going for a second. Verse four. I'm just going to take you through his logic a little bit and then we're going to stop for a moment. He that speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he that prophesies edifies the what? Right, so there's your, there's your contrast. If you're going after the gloss of the Leah, you're really going for yourself. If you're going after prophecy, you're going for the body of Christ. And the question is, which one constitutes maturity and which one constitutes childishness? See what I'm getting at? Because that's where he's going to go. That's what his argument is going to be. You're like children. Verse five. I would that you all spake with tongues, but rather that you what? Now, notice what he does with that. I should leave that alone until we get to the gift of tongues. Because what he said is, I, I, would, I would love for you guys to all know languages. 
which means you don't. So that means that not everybody in the church are going to be speaking in languages. That follows, right? But he's still urging that everyone has the capacity to prophesy. See it? So, for greater is he that what? Prophesieth than he that speaks with a tongue. You guys can actually build out this as a syllogism. Prophesying edifies, glossolalea doesn't. Prophesying is preferred, glossolalea is not. Prophesying actually is greater, glossolalea is not. He's, he's leveraging everything towards prophecy, is he not? Right. Notice what he says, except one interpret that the church may receive what? Right. So if we were to just tackle that and we won't tackle it really fully until we deal with glossolalea, what Paul is saying is, is speaking in tongues, lalea and glossolalea means nothing to the body of Christ unless there's the gift of interpretation to take that language and now make it understandable in our common linguistic dialect. Then we can understand what they're saying. If someone is speaking in a language that you cannot understand, there is no edification for you. See what I'm getting at? It's extremely important that, that the church at Corinth get it. Verse 6. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? If I shall speak to you either, except I speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine. You see what he just stated? That makes all the sense in the world. If I do speak in, uh, in, in Lalean or Glossal Lalean, I need to be able to interpret. That's called revelation. Because revelation is to explain and open up a foreign language, okay? I need to have the gift of revelation, or I need to speak to you in the word of knowledge, or I need to do what we said we were talking about all this class, prophesy, or by what? Doctrine, which is teaching. That's how the body is built up, by the way, by revelation, knowledge, prophecy, and doctrine, is it not? Verse 7. In fact, that's what you and I are doing right now. And even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sound, how shall it be known what is piped or harp? What is Paul arguing for? He's arguing for making sure that you and I don't open ourselves up to chaos and confusion in the atmosphere and community of the people of God and call that a dimension of edification. Did that make some sense? He's saying, do not be like children who love running around, engaging in chaos and disorder and call that edification. You know how our kids, as soon as worship is over, they break form and go for it, don't they? They break form and go for it, jumping over the chairs, running up, tearing up stuff. They enjoy that. Adults don't. And what Paul is saying to the body of believers here is, do not be given to the chaos. James chapter 3. Verse 16. We're going to open the mic. I need somebody to run right now so we can get out of here. I need a couple people with mics. James says this, and I think it's going to be, uh, oh, this is it. Um, start back at verse 13, if you don't mind. Walk this through right quick. Who is, wise among, who is a wise man or woman and do with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation. The word conversation is lifestyle. His works with what? Meekness of wisdom. This meekness of wisdom. So the believer in the ascertaining of all of the gifts and applications of the gifts, what should come out of our life is a character of meekness. And meekness is going to be the evidence that you are submitted to God. So meekness is not just being kind of uh, tempered in your attitude, 
there should be something to that. But it, it doesn't have to be so much as tempered in your attitude as is tempered in your character to where people can easily see that you are sensitive to God. Because if you're sensitive to God, then you are going to be careful as much as possible with people. Does that make some sense? It really does. It really does. Because everywhere in the Bible, God would have you to be careful with people. You don't get to roughshod people. Uh, Mature believers know that. Because our goal is to persuade you. Our goal is to please you in the biblical sense of pleasing, which means to persuade you to what is right so that you ultimately are pleased with what God is pleased with. All right. Notice what he says out of a conversation, out of a good conversation with his works, with works, with meekness of wisdom. Verse 14. So godly wisdom produces that. But if you have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. There it is. We know these are the works of the devil. Look at the next verse. The wisdom, this wisdom does not descend from above. So we already know the Holy Ghost is coming from above. He's granting us the capacity to prophesy. Prophesying is designed to edify, bring clarity and comfort. If we are experiencing this kind of wisdom is not from above, it's earthly, it's sensual, and it's what? Devilish. Right. One more verse. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion. In every what? And what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, that the churches of Christ are never to be churches of chaos and confusion. So God is not the author of chaos and confusion. So we never want to adopt a policy of practice that promotes it or leads to it. So if somebody is saying something to you, intentionally seeking to confuse you, they're not being godly. All right, so we'll open the mic because there's a lot more to be said. We'll pick, we'll advance on Tuesday. Who has the mic? Where, where are fingers pointed to? Um, do you have a mic? Okay, go ahead. On. It should be on. <clears throat> I just wanted to talk about that wisdom of, of how we speak to others and the meekness and the gentleness that we talked about. I don't remember if that's true. There's a scripture where a, a younger person shouldn't be correcting, like their parent, for example. So if if we've got that situation where maybe a, a much much older person, maybe our parents in our nineties, and they're saying things that maybe aren't appropriate. It wouldn't be right, you know, to say, like, you know, the word of God would have us such and so. And you know what I mean? You want to you want to build that out? Because at at the moment, it's not coming out like it makes any real. I just feel like it's not appropriate. What is not? um, To correct an elder or a parent. So would, would we want them to continue in error? No. Okay. I know some of it has to do with my reverence Mm -hmm. for that elder, Mm -hmm. my love Mm -hmm. for that elder. So this is where you talked about how how it can be bitter. Um, 
But I, I swear there was a, a scripture about not correcting an elder. Um, that kind of yes and no. So I think I can help you. So it's three categories you developing here. One category is the um, the elder who may be developing a measure of incoherence and therefore is not operating at the highest level of competency with which you may be struggling with them because of that. And therefore you and I are, are wanting extra normal uh, charitableness with them. That is respect. It should be there. That's one category. So attitude and, 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 and sensibility around engaging them especially if they're saying things that we know are nonsensical and not rational or are coherent. But we don't have to succumb to um, agreeing with or affirming their statements if they are delusional, if they're unprofitable, and if they're not helpful. The goal is not to let them persist in the way they're going, particularly if it's harmful. So what are we going to do? Without being disrespectful, without being harsh or exercising a kind of authoritarian attitude over our parent, which you don't want to do because that would be disrespectful, we would want to engage them by nudging them into a different way of thinking, a different way of understanding, uh, a better way of comprehending that topic we're dealing with. So you're going to be what the proverb says in Proverbs 15, you're going to be a soft answer. Remember Proverbs 15, 1? A soft answer turns away wrath, right? But grievous words stir up strife. And so even though you are the subordinate, your job is to help mom or dad nudge them in a direction where they're thinking better if you can. Okay? So it's not mutually exclusive that to be respectful, you don't get to say anything. All right, so that's, that's extremely important. So the text you are dealing with is first, that's first Timothy 5, that has to do with elders in the church. Rebuke not an elder, except it be with two or three witnesses, and be very careful if you approach it that way. Nobody gets to just rebuke an elder. It's just, you, you, you're talking about chaos like I don't know what. You have to come right. Um, and, and that would be certainly the case with parents. Children should not think that they can just rebuke ad hoc their parents. That's complete disrespect. And, but it doesn't mean that the children cannot reason with their parents, engage their parents in dialogue, seek to win their parent, encourage them to see things differently and broadly and, 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 and be inclusive with their children. Because a lot of times as parents, we can be super duper narrow minded. And that's no good. All right, so I, ho- I hope that helps right there. Who has the mic? All right, let's start with Lisa, and then we'll make our way around. First of all, Jesse, thank you for all the emails you're sending out. They're like, like, wow, it makes so much sense. So around all that sense, so COVID, I was very comfortable with COVID, knowing that it was all wrong. And with this, I don't really know anything about it, but I still have to tell you when I get the emails, I'm ready to get like, get on a side. And that's what's beautiful about the emails is there's no side to get on except for God's side. 
and love. And it's, I, I, the last one I, I listened to, I was kind of blown away that the, the churches are preaching war. Yep. And then the, I know that COVID, the 501C, enabled the churches to continue preaching malarkey and get paid for it mm-hmm. and not having to stand up. Is this the same kind of thing? Like, when did this all happen, or has it been happening forever? For a long time, not forever, but for a long time. And I'm just going to put a few points up on the board in relationship to that, because like I told this community many years ago, that we are on an inevitable clash with eschatology. You guys have heard me talk about that before. So anytime I do a class on eschatology, you know, I deal with four views. You guys know that, right? A preterite view, this is called a historic view of eschatology, a millennial view of eschatology, an all-millennial view of eschatology, and what is called a post-millennial view, right? So a millennial view will hold multiple categories. And these are all kind of like four fundamental categories the church has held throughout church history. And what I've shared with, um, with our church for, for, for many years is that eschatology is something that people get to speculate about because eschatology is trying to reason through what the world will look like right before Jesus comes, right? And every, every century, the church is trying to uh, uh, monetize or... Um, Uh, used as a commodity to strengthen its relevance in the world, trying to determine where we are in terms of the return of Christ, how evil the world is, what kind of wars we're going through. The end of the world is going to be at the end of the first millennium. You can imagine that. Here we are way into the second millennium. It didn't happen. And every hundred years, the church has engaged in trying to frame a kind of apocalyptic sort of uh, crisis for the world in order to leverage its relevance in the world. Um, But we've already dealt with the church and politics. You've heard me talk about beast one and beast two, have you not? I've been teaching this for a long time. I'm trying to be as simple as possible. I talked about it on Sunday because I see these these um, I see these models all the time in scripture as we're dealing with Balak. Balak. Balak is the king of Moab. He's a king, is he not? That's a political kingdom, is it not? And then we're dealing with who? Balaam, right? And Balaam is a what? Prophet, right? He's a representative of the church. Only he's a representative of what we call the false church. So you got the political kingdom with the false church. This sums up the whole message of Revelation chapter uh, uh, 12 through 14. Beast one, politics. Beast two, religion. When politics and religion comes together, you have war. Right. Politics and religion. Listen, on the same day that Herod, politics, and Pontius Pilate, I mean, uh, Pontius Pilate, politics, Herod, king of the Jews, religion came together, they killed Jesus. You guys got that? They became friends. Pilate and Herod became friends. When they killed Jesus. So the point man to the crisis is Jesus because politics and religion had to take him out because he was destroying the success of both the political and the religious systems that were in view. That paradigm has been working its way throughout scripture up to this present hour. So the church is supposed to have a healthy oppositional stance to the government. 
the role of the church is prophetic and priestly. Did that make sense? So that it can tell the kingship politics, you cannot be immoral in your dealing with the subjects of the kingdom. But whenever politics can buy, purchase, control, bribe, dominate religion, those two become a couple of whores. That's Revelation 17. And, and the whore is going to be the, um, the, the religious system giving the political system sort of privileges, indulgences, giving them rights to do evil to humanity in the name of God. So you and I are now seeing the political tables turning briefly here, taking us right back to the uh, Palestine-Jerusalem sort of dichotomy I've been teaching you guys about. And you're starting to look at that dialectic, that argument, that, that conflict narrative, are you not? And you're seeing that there has been the same kind of cajoling, misrepresentation, false propaganda on both sides, but largely on the side of American Western Christianity being so pro-Israeli that fundamentally the Palestinian people don't even exist. I've told you, you can take that conflict narrative, which is a Marxian philosophy of conflict, and you can run it through all kinds of models. We've talked about that. Husband and wives, families and children, right? We've talked about this, uh, men and women, uh, children in terms of being, you know, gendered distinct. We've talked about this. We're talking about the West, uh, Western civilization over against Eastern civilization now. Almost every country that becomes prominent economically and prominent militarily will take up a narrative that they are the good guy and everybody else is the bad guy. This is history. So what I have been doing with you guys is I have been doing a roundabout to open up the arguments to help you to see how diabolical your media is. Has it been helping you? Right. So the challenge becomes, as as Christ told the disciples, um, he said it in Matthew 24, see to it that no man deceives you. That's the first order of business for Christians. The first order of business for Christians is to never be deceived. The inference of that imperative is that if men can, they will deceive you. Did that make some sense? And so one of the things that you guys are beginning to learn, which is why I've argued for years against premillennial dispensational theology, is because premillennial dispensational theology at its roots is Zionism. You guys know that now, aren't you? You're starting to see it now, right? So a premill view as I told you, cannot be a Christ-exalting view because this dispensational, dispensational framework actually says that you and I are living in a kind of parentheses period that when our time is up, Israel comes back on the scene and becomes the prominent player in the world where everything is centered around Israel rather than centered around Christ. But once you take up that kind of model of eschatology, you don't know inadvertently you take Christ down and you exalt a nation. Did did that make some sense? 
And I taught us this many years ago. I mean, like for me, this is ad nauseum because I've stated it over and over. Look at their eschatological system as complex as it is. The premillennial dispensational system is really a pro-Zion system of establishing Israel into the land and removing everybody out, hook or crook, you know, kill a martyr or whatever the case is and establish them as the center of the world for the future. And America has been in on that for 150 years minimum in terms of um, a, a codified eschatology supporting Israel carte blanche. So now what you guys are learning is that if they were to sit all of the factors on the table, this is what we learned about COVID. What we told people was set the facts on the table. If you sit the facts on the table, you'll discover that COVID was a hoax and that we know now that it was a biological weapon that was let out on the human race to control us, right? You people are really getting sick, but it didn't happen as a natural process of, of, a, of a virus jumping from an animal to humans. We know that now. This was in order to destroy our immune systems to bring us into a kind of rabbit hole or hamster wheel control uh, in the medical system. And we know that. But the issue is always narrative. It's always information. If you hear one side of an argument as a Christian, you have no grounds to have a kind of impulse to buy it. Even if it feels good, even if it supports your position, even if it says you are great because you are America. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. What does the Bible say about America? I remember years ago, I won't stay on this long, but I remember years ago, people used to ask me, Pastor Jesse, where is America in the Bible? I said, it's nowhere in the Bible, but if you want to know what it's controlled by, just go to Genesis chapter three, verse one, and you'll know. Um, so um, America is not in biblical prophecy in any sense whatsoever. This is a system that has to be carefully deconstructed to show you that you are preconditioned to buy a political side that forces you to be less than Christian when it comes to other people. Religion without Christ is a monster. Did you hear what I just stated? Religion without Jesus will kill anyone in the name of God. Um, and this is why what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24 is when they come after you, um, don't resist the evil. You got to use a different mechanism. All right. You cannot overcome evil with evil. The sword and the sword will only bring death for everybody. You got to be wiser than that. And the gospel actually has won in our world over the years by strategically depending upon God and, and having uh, ethics of dialogue and conversations with our adversaries in order to establish. See, at the, end of the di- in the, at the end of the day, still it's going to amount to a biblical worldview that brings about peace. And I can tell you why, because you can never have peace by how many bombs can be uh, employed by either side and whoever has the most bombs win, everybody loses. Do you understand that? Everybody loses. And the gospel cannot be about might makes right. The gospel can never be about us having more power than other people. Therefore, we're right because this is how we justified slavery. Because we're dealing with slavery paradigms right here, are we not? And, and this is true all around the world, ladies and gentlemen. Apartheid is just part of the Genesis 3 narrative, I'm telling you now. 
So we're waking up to what happened here recently, which was a um, it was a, a mistake on the part of um, on the part of Israel. Uh, and but it was due to power shifts and power dynamics geopolitically that are actually calling all of us to reevaluate history up to the present. Because like anything, it was the same thing that just happened recently with um, with, um, with 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 Black Lives Matter, with the civil rights movement, etc. Um, America knows it has engaged in all kinds of atrocities on an ethnic level. We know that even with our, our brothers and sisters who are Native Americans. You know, we we engaged in horrible genocide to take this land. You got to own that because justice is always going to show up at some point. Like you can't kill the children of any ethnic group in total. The spirit of those children is going to rise up somewhere and get you somewhere down the line if you don't make real peace. Does that make some sense? So America is suffering right now the instability of not being able to any longer cover up the history of its atrocities. Right. And this is why your Bible is so apropos. Um, The Bible will say the one that is first in his own cause will always appear right. And the person that will bite is the person that doesn't have enough discipline to say, I want to hear the whole matter. And when you want to hear the whole matter, you are willing to listen to all sides. Did that make some sense? I want to hear all sides. I want to get all the data out. I want to remove all of the the bad data, the distorted data, the curated data, the false data. Let's remove all that and put all the real data on the table, right? Because once you do that, then we can evaluate as an informed consent, which you couldn't do with the vaccine. There was no way anyone had an informed consent because there was no evidence anywhere on the vaccine labels as to its harm or its good. That was a violation of the Nuremberg Code, but don't nobody even know that. See, the, and what's, what's taking place now is really a dangerous set of complex issues that can only be resolved by wise men, Okay. Wise men can resolve this problem, okay? But they cannot be warmongers. The cost is too high. Uh, I'll leave it like that. But Zionism, if you, if you do your research, I'm kind of putting you guys on the track now. You can find it for yourself. We did that before we supported Israel in doing that. And, and here's the sad thing about it. Let me see if I can put this out to you. Your Bible tells you that God is no respect of persons. Your Bible also tells you that in in any community, if Torah is going to be honored, there should be one law for the stranger as well as for the people of the land. That's what Torah says. Torah doesn't set up hierarchical structures where you have a tier of dominant people over other people. We do that on our own. Torah didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. That's why Jesus plainly said that, hey, whosoever believes on me. Has, has everlasting life. And that's why they didn't like him then because he hung out with Samaritans and Jews and Gentiles and, and everybody else. So the gospel is really about liberty from those kind of synthetic hierarchical structures that have set people up to be disadvantaged, all right? Um, but the stuff I've exposed you to, share it with other people because they just don't know. Like they didn't know about COVID, you know, you share it. You share it with them because this one here, listen, we don't want the uh, we don't want the Jewish people in Israel annihilated. 
We don't want the Palestinians annihilated. We're not going to tolerate it. Do you understand what I just stated? We're not going to tolerate it. Meaning, see, like if you tolerate any one person being annihilated, you set yourself up to be annihilated. You have no reason to believe that you are worthy of living if you allow one soul to be able to be sacrificed as if they're not human. You don't get to do that. Now you got to set aside your self-righteous, prejudicial, eschatological systems and now come back to the table and try to understand what the Bible is really saying which is what we've been doing for a long time. So a lot of you have been privileged to become part of a church whose legacy goes all the way back to the Reformation where God helped us create an even-handed interpretation of scripture where we did not succumb to the politics of our government. Did that make some sense? So like Reformed theology in its system, not in its leaders, because its leaders collapsed into the same apartheid stuff too, okay? They just did, just like Israel did, just like uh, Catholicism fell right into a, a dominate them by the sword. Greek Orthodoxy did the same thing. Muslims did the same thing. Everybody did the same thing. They kind of fell into a militant religious sort of um, uh, crusade to dominate people um, because they saw no other way to influence the world Uh, for truth other than by the sword and by power. And Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by it. That makes sense, right? Y'all kind of got that. So you really want to learn this because premillennial dispensational um, ideology, I wouldn't call it even a biblical theology, is so entrenched in our political systems all the way up that your average Christian that is not clear on the gospel will never be able to deconstruct the premillennial system because it's super complex. But I'm, I'm always willing to talk to dispensationalists. I've, some of you guys have been with me a long time. I'll, I'll call them out on the radio. I'll say, if you want to talk about it, let's talk about it. I know all your points. Let's actually see whether or not you're exalting Christ in this system or you're exalting men. See, and that, and that becomes the issue. Somebody's going to lose. Like one of our Christian brothers said it the other day. He said, I don't know why the Jews would even buy into a premillennial dispensational theology because it has most of them being wiped out in a nuclear war. The only people living among the Jews is 144,000. Why? The Jews aren't that stupid, are they? No, they're not. But they'll play on the back of this system to get what they want in terms of political power when they know full well they don't buy into this premillennial dispensational ideology at all. Did y'all get what I just stated? Right. I've been saying it for years. If I was a Jew, I wouldn't buy dispensationalism. I wouldn't buy it at all. You mean only 144,000 of us? The other thing is, too, is you've got to be careful about the categories, because let's say, you know, wiping out the Jews. May I say something to you? That will never happen. That's so dumb. It's a false argument. Like, Like somebody is assuming that all Jews are in Israel. There are way more Jews outside of Israel than there are in Israel. You're never going to get rid of the Jewish people and you're never going to get rid of the Palestinians. And the Palestinian and the Jews are far more an eclectic group of different ethnic groups among them and abroad than we are even being honest about. They fund them mentally with the, no, not even with the exception of Africans, because we got African Jewish brothers too. Did y'all know that? 
deeply African Zionist Jewish brothers in, in, uh, in Israel right now. So Israel has played a part in the early national religious influence of drawing almost every ethnic group to itself. That's what we saw in Acts chapter two, when the 17 nations came to Israel, when the Holy Ghost was poured out, 17 nations. They were Jews by religion, but they were from the Arab part of the world. They were from the East and part of them were from Africa as well. So it's much more complex than let's say ethnic Judaism. So what's going on even in Israel is a constant divide among them. A lot of them don't like the Knesset being dominated by a Zionist mentality of wanting to wipe out all the Palestinians. And you're not even getting that in your main media outlet. Did y'all know that? They've been arguing this for a long time. Orthodox Jews in Israel reject the assertion that Israel has the right to take up all that land and exterminate everybody. And their argument is the only time is right for them to come back is when Messiah actually comes back. They don't get to do it by the power of governments or the power of military might. I have more respect for Orthodox Jews on that level than I do political Jews in that regard. Am I making some sense? Right. A lot lot to learn. And we'll be unpacking that more as we go along. But what you guys want to do is listen to these presentations very carefully and get your understanding of eschatology right. Because if you do, you can help some of your brothers. So what's happening now? And I love what God does. God will kind of create what Vody Bakum calls a um, a uh, an earthquake and therefore a tectonic shift, a shift. And so things shake up and now you kind of are alerted when there's a shifting of the tectonic plates and you're going, what happened? Now it's time for you to drill down and find out what happened so you can wake up from the sleep you were in by propaganda telling you that it's really only this way. Does that make some sense? Before we go back to sleep, and and I don't know if that's going to happen. I have no idea what's getting ready to go down, but we are on some very precarious grounds. We are setting up a structure for World War III. There is no doubt about that. And, and that is not cool. No Christian should love war. Who has the mic? Marlis. I'll get you in a second. I want to ask a question. Um, I want to read the scripture first. First, second, first Timothy 2. Five, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So does that mean that, I mean, given that scripture, can we accurately come to the conclusion that the times when the word of the Lord came to me is in the scriptures, through the prophets, the burning bush, all the um, appearances of God to the people, that was actually Jesus to them? Um, that's, that's my question. Yes, that's what he said. Okay. That's what he said. All right. That's okay. good to know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I saw uh, Jackie. Okay. So... You, um, 
earlier spoke on salvation and ministry. Yes. And I was thinking about King David. He was both. And you always do that thing, and in both. And I thought of King David being both. That's right. And so I also... Um, Very good. Elijah, mm-hmm. I, well, let me ask. Prophecy is actually the testimony of Christ, right? And so... I wanted to ask about personal prophecy when people come up to you and they prophesy. Yeah, that's a real problem. And we'll talk about that next week. Okay. That's a real problem because this, so if I give you the, the biblical and theological definition of prophecy as constituting the testimony of Jesus, that is an adumbration that all of the utterances of God are summed up coherently in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, that's going to be a broad subject at the level of his work personally in his own calling and his offices and its application to us in terms of us being the people that he saves and how we actually collaborate with him in that process of our salvation. That's going to be a broad, complex system to understand the subject-object relationship between Jesus in himself and Jesus in and by and through and for us. So yes, prophecy is to us and it's to us in relationship to who we are in Christ and our role in participating in the revelation of Christ So when the Bible will tell you and me to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and our neighbor as ourself, these become ethics for how we understand God at the affectionate level and how we understand human beings at the affectionate level. And what Christ becomes for us is a model and ethic on how to love one another and love God, too. Does that make some sense, you guys? And and so if we are dealing with kind of a word from the Lord, if you will, to a person here or there, if that word from the Lord is not concretely scriptural, rooted in a redemptive objective, and therefore maybe have application to us, then I know that it's a Christless prophecy, and therefore it's not the testimony of Jesus. Did that make some sense, you guys? I don't care how good it feels. The Lord told me he's going to bless you with a five million dollar house and it's coming in six months. You just need to wait on your season. And so my other question real quick is about relics like, okay, when Elijah passed his mantle unto Elijah, was that like a relic? Because I know in the Catholic Church... It was, have- a, it, was, it was not a relic. So I, I really love your question. The only thing that's going to be a relic... Um, uh, Giannis, can you grab the mic from her, please? The only thing that's going to be a relic is a shenanigan of a medium that religious hucksters will use to infer that there is something significant in, you know, the, the, the Shroud of Turin, or a piece of wood, or the thorns. Like you go to Israel, they, they, that whole thing is set up. I'm just telling you. 
I don't know how you go to Israel and do the whole religious thing and not really understand that you have been hoodwinked from the time you got off the boat to the time you came back. I don't even know how Christians can go over there and not know that that whole thing is a construct set up to deceive. Okay, Um, it's sad to say, but the mantle being dropped from Elijah to Elisha is a metaphor of the spirit of God being given to us from Christ when he ascended on high and let the spirit of God come down upon the church so that the works of Christ, we would extend in the world after him. This is why they were there when they saw him go up into heaven in the same way that Elisha saw Elijah go up into heaven. Remember the conditions were, if you see me go up, you can have the mantle. Well, the apostles saw him go up. So the mantle was given to them and then given to us through them. Does that make some sense? So we wouldn't use the term relic. We would use the term um, symbolic token. That's why I talked about tokens. The mantle is a token. Um, And God definitely used tokens in the Old Testament, but signs and tokens and symbols and metaphors were all part of the Old Testament tutelage until you come into the New Testament. This is why you and I don't go Uh, and do blood sacrifices and and offerings. And we don't get engaged in relics anymore. It's worshiping him in spirit and in truth because it's a more substantial internal reality that we engage God in. That makes sense, right? All right. Um, Hold on. Somebody else had the mic. Who else had the mic? Is that it? Because we're going to close down. All right. Okay, good. Dante and then... uh, um, We'll let you add, add one thing. We'll close. I love this sign. What's up, Dante? Um, so do you think, like, because um, I see what's going on around the world. Um, China, they're issuing out these CCP Bibles to the Christians over there. And, um, you know, that's, I always thought that would happen here, but it didn't happen here. It happened over there. where they, I thought they would, like, years ago, they would close down bookstores and start issuing out distorted Bibles. But it did happen, just not here. And um, not only this, but you have, like, the prophet you're referencing about, you know, the spirit being cast out on the last days, and you have people in the Middle East and North Africa having visions and dreams about Jesus turning from Orthodox Judaism and Islam to, you know, Christianity. Yeah. And also in India. Yeah. And um, so you have all these things going on. Now you have this... this build up towards World War Three has been happening for years now, and uh, do you think like you know because in Revelations chapter nineteen it talks about two entities being attacked, which is the saints in the holy city representing I guess the Jewish people and the Christian people being attacked at the last days, but there's no Antichrist, but I can find in Revelations. Not in Revelation nineteen. Yeah, I don't see him. Um, and then it's talked about in Zechariah, some type of slaughter before, you know, Christ returns. So I'm wondering, like, do you think, I'm not sure, like, you know, where we are, but do you think we're closer to, like, Revelations chapter, end of 18 to 19 and, and up? And do you think all these things are, besides the devil, are also being brought about by God? Or oh, of course. Your perspective. Yeah, of course. Let me see if I can tie it a little bit, because what you're dealing with is the question of where we are on the uh, apocalyptic timeline. So this would be a more this would be a more learned question if you guys were if we had to like really dig through. And I, I'm almost sure we're going to 
I'm almost sure we're going to be there. We're going to have to deal with eschatology on a much more, um, on a much more viscerally life-saving level. We're going to have, in other words, if the church believes it has a revelation from God about the way things are going to end up, and we are moving towards a um, a crisis of conclusion, we should be getting more clarity on what the things that scripture say is. And we're going to have to, um, we're going to have to work through all of the presuppositions that have gone beforehand where people are preconditioned under several modes of eschatology. Of course, because I do study the book of Revelation in depth, I, I know where Dante is. Where Dante is, is in chapters 19 through 21, wondering whether or not we are about to go into a major world crisis that will ultimately create a kind of collapse of society as we know it and maybe emerge into a millennial paradigm, which is what a lot of people think. Or are we coming up on the end of the millennial paradigm and, and emerging into the final stages of Satan being loosed, going out to the four quarters of the world and, and bringing the, uh, and, and encompassing the uh, saints, the camp of the saints about. That's Revelation chapter 20, not 19, by the way. And when you looked at that language carefully, it's not giving any ethnic group. It's just saying the camp of the saints. So the assumption that it's some real estate in, in Palestine um, is easily contended with by the forefathers. What the metaphor is simply saying is this, and I think this will help in general. Uh, in addition to, I appreciate what you said, Dante, about what God is doing around the world um, in, in actually saving people, even now from the Gentile nations, among Muslims, among Asians, among Indians. That is what a lot of us have known for a long time. Um, what we can know is that the powers of the secular systems are being forced prophetically into a unity of collaboration to put an end to anything that might be called a biblical worldview that is rooted in a monotheistic construct with a Messiah at the center of it. So the secular world system wants to get rid of a Messiah ideology, a Messiah doctrine, if you guys can capture that. That's Revelation 17, 14. I'm leaving it in those general terms because... I really do believe five years from now, seven years from now, it'll be so much more explicit that all we'll have to do is organize the categories and we will see them more clearly. Remember Daniel, you, know, you guys bear with me. I'm not going to preach or teach. But remember when COVID first started and I took you through the book of Daniel? You remember what I said? Daniel was given to be a seer for Israel because Israel had been brought into bondage. And I said, a good leader has to see way down the line. Do you guys remember me telling you that? And I told you what God gave young Daniel, young Daniel as a, um, a chief minister in the Babylonian kingdom. He was second in command, along with Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael um, over the Babylonian kingdom. And Daniel made it into the Medo-Persian kingdom as well. And Daniel was the one that received the revelation of what was taking place in 587 BC all the way up to the coming of Christ 
all the way past the coming of Christ to where you and I are today so that the book of Revelation is largely a, um, a, a development of Daniel chapter 7 through Daniel 11. And it has helped us understand the unfolding of history up till now. And Daniel only knew a portion of it. If you remember, Daniel was asked by the angel, Daniel, do you understand these things? And Daniel said, I don't. He said, it's not for you. It will be made known in the time of the end. So what happens is we're given certain clarity on certain things because we are only at a certain era in history where we only need clarity on certain things. I promise you that where we are today with the troubles that are going on in our world, this is exactly how the world felt 150 years ago. This is exactly how they felt in the first millennium. This is exactly how they felt in the Middle Ages when they thought that we were on the end of either annihilation because of natural catastrophe or world wars. And, uh, and, And Christ didn't come. But shifts did occur and biblical prophecy was fulfilled and the advancement of the gospel went into the world and the world got a lot more enlightened and technology came into play. And a lot of things that we have now are better than where we were 100 years ago. So we do believe in what is called progressive revelation that does a better job for society than where we were 100 years ago. So you and I don't ever want to go the former days. The former days were better than these. That would be a misnomer and a faulty way of thinking. It would be sort of an emotional, uh, you know, uh, misrepresentation of history, by the way. So God is always doing good and advancing goodness and righteousness, even in the midst of tons of wickedness going on in our world. You and I want to be able to pick up on the goodness of God. Does that make some sense? No, you want to be able to pick up on the goodness of God. And, And if anything will help you, we'll close right now. Remember, all four horsemen are operating at the same time. They're never not operating. The white horse is operating. It's the horse of peace through the gospel. The red horse is operating. Somebody always want to kill somebody. The, 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 the speckled horse is operating. Somebody want to always control the money and create famines and get people trapped by, you know, monetary systems. And of course, the black horse of death is happening. So people are dying. The economy systems are being shaken up. Next year this time, in a second, next year this time, it's going to be way worse economically. They can't hear you. You you would have to have a mic. Uh, The economy is going to be difficult. And I will put this out to you this way. The economy is really bad for a lot of people around the world right now. Oh, yeah. Hold on for a second. Do you guys understand what I just stated? Let me see if I can make sure this comes home. I I think about this a lot. I think about how privileged we are as Americans. And I think about how many people are starving every day around the world. And there are lots of people starving in America. And, And I'm not making America special because we're still way better off than so many other countries. So maybe what I'm doing with you is I'm hoping that you will go deeper with me into sensitivity about the real factors of what's going on in our world instead of seeing the world through this shallow 
narrow sort of um, space in which you live where everything is all right with you and therefore it's all right with the world. It's not. It's not. I was just going through a relatively important piece of uh, real estate and economic data today. And the cost of homes are off the charts. And we're about to go into another worse than 2008 uh, real estate bust. And it's going to be a confiscation by our government of the properties to force people into the ghetto model of renting, which is another part of the biosecurity state surveillance control mechanism by controlling the monies. Now, you and if you if you are like me, I don't feel it directly because God has allowed me to save my money. Like I'm I'm really a tightwad in a lot of ways. And so I've saved some money over the years because I've always been broke. And, and I don't say that to say anything but this. You know, I could be just like them. And, and then I would be really struggling to rob Peter to pay Paul and then not really knowing what to do next. And you and I are going to see more brothers and sisters in that way in America and around the world. And, and what it should do is really raise your level of empathy for them. Because if we were to extrapolate that across a punctiliar event like a war that would escalate that kind of uh, scenario, now we have the Palestinians. You understand that? Do you understand what I just stated? Now we have the Palestinians. Now, I mean, I remember this in the Sudan. Many years ago, I remember when Ethiopia was going through this. I remember when many countries were dealing with these kind of famines and starvation, and they were also economically manipulated and manipulated at military levels too. And we don't get to be nonchalant and careless about it. And therefore, we don't get to flippantly choose political sides, like I'm on this side of, you know, because... I mean, that's what God says. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, lest the Lord see it and raise him up and you be requited in the end. I'm hoping God will keep everybody listening to my voice sensitive to these matters and deeply rooted in how to properly interpret what's going on. So you don't fall prey to politics and don't become a hardened, sort of calloused, self-righteous, pharisaical American Christian. Okay. I'm trying to make this as clear as I can and simple, but it's a difficult situation. Anyway, just to, I want to preface it. It'll make it easier. Uh, in Austria, Hungary, there was 52 million people. And in Serbia, there was 4 million. Yep. Somebody killed yep. Duke Ferdinand, a person, <laughs> uh, started a war. Then you have alliances. So there's alliances on one side, alliances on this other side. Sure. And they had a world war. Yeah. Okay, then they came up with the League of Nations. They're yeah. supposed to take care of the people. Never worked. Uh, so we end up with the Second World War, if I got it down here. You do. Yeah, you Ger- right. Germany was in the war. Yeah. 62 million people. Today's Poland, 26 million people. So there's 88 million people involved in that. Casualties. Between 60 to 80 million deaths. They don't know how many people were injured. Uh, whatever happened. Wouldn't it have been better to have these... Uh, I guess 104 million people fight between each other, and they die. We'll have two countries we can take over, and nobody goes to war. I totally agree. So you get pulled in a war. The war we're in right now is ridiculous. 
But the, the idea of the United Nations, which is a joke, it's a, it's a, it's a party. Uh, they don't do anything. That's their function. Think about this today. It's 2.3 million uh, Gazans. They're not even a part of this, if you think about it. The wars between Hamas, which is a terrorist organization, and Israel. That's, that's the two sides. Yeah, but they're collateral damage. Because they are. Really you, no, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I'm going to cover that. I understand. I hate that collateral okay. damage. I think they should stop bringing that. But anyway, just keep this in mind. Wars got started by two sides, very small. What's the size of the first side? Israel has 9.42 or 4 million people. 1.6 million are actually Palestinians right. that live there. 20%. And then Hamas hijacks a country because their military is so strong and the, 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 the Palestinians have nothing. So the Palestinians are hostages on both sides. Israel's got hostages, but now uh, the hostages are Hamas is fighting under them, and they have to become collateral damage. And I understand what's going on over there, and I hate it. So people, I don't want people to die. But now you got the world split. You have the Shias and the Sunnis are getting together. Turkey's out there with a huge military. Lebanon just entered the war. Here's all that had to happen in this situation. All we had to do in the United Nations is go to Iran because we know that they're funding Hamas and, and Hezbollah. Tell Iran you can't do that anymore. Just quit the funding. Uh, and then what we do is we just go over there, and then we the, Hamas will have nothing. They won't have any weapons. They won't have anything to work with. You tell Hamas you got to leave. Uh, they don't have any people in there. We got special forces and everything. All you tell is Hamas. You quit doing what you're doing, or we're going to come in and take you out. They know who they are. So the whole thing is, you're going to have the, the whole world divided, and all they had to do is stop Iran from funding him, but they won't be able to do anything. Tell Hamas, we know who you are. If you keep doing this thing, we're going to bring our people in. Because if Israel wanted to go after, actually wanted to go over to Palestine, five minutes after the war started, that whole, that whole 2.3 million people would be dust. Yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> I, I totally agree with you. It took, let me put it this way. 90% of what you said I agree with. There's 10% that we don't have time to unpack here. Yeah. <laughs> 10% and we won't. I believe we're facing a war is my problem. I know. For it's, this it's, situation. We're already in a war. Well, yeah, we are, we're actually. In a, we're in a world war now. Though, it's psychological. Well, that's been the case. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate what you said. We'll, sure. we'll, 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 we'll deal with it in the future more, more fully. What I am saying is that what we're dealing with are geopolitical tensions that that has Israel at the center. Yes, of, they are. The they future. put themselves there. Yeah, but not just them. America put them there too. The Brits yeah, we're, put them we're there at risk too. because we so, did it. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that right now we're just dealing with a tug of war that we need to maintain the equilibrium until cooler heads can prevail at having a conversation about what really are the factual outcomes that, that can occur that can get us back on a track of peace. We can talk all kind of but, but, buts, but they got to come together around reality because if not, we're going to just go to a crazy war that has no predictable end in sight. It has no, the next war has no predictable end in sight. So our job is to pray. <laughs> our yeah. job is to pray. Listen, our, our job is to pray because, I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, Don, and we're not going to continue now. Now we can do it later. Sure. But you and I are not going to the United Nations. You and I, I are not talking to these 
these clowns up there. I'm going to these, that way. But these uh, clowns uh, have to talk to themselves and realize the cost of one chain reaction leading to another chain reaction and then not being able to stop. The, the clowns up there have to realize that they're, they're Lilliputians. And, 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 and this is why God tells the church to pray for kings and rulers and all that are in authority because he can turn their hearts. And if he turns, if he turns their hearts, we can abate another. This, this one here has no logical end game, but worldwide destruction. This, this is what we know. And the world has never saw the capacity for worldwide destruction at the level that we are at. Even the Cold War didn't have the kind of powder keg uncertainties that we're dealing with now. This is where we need to be prayerful and thoughtful. And our problem is unlike what was going on in the 70s and the 80s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. We have technology that allows our information to be spoon-fed to us by a collaborated system that curates the data and it can deceive the masses and keep them off guard so that the masses don't know how to respond in real time to the lies that come through the media. Long ago, the media used to be for the people. It used to be willing to tell the truth about what was going on here and there and the other place. It's been so totally captivated now that it's very possible that you and I could be hearing one thing, seeing another thing, and, and nuclear warheads are going off right as we speak. And so we need, to, we need to just be prayerful that if we wake up to those kind of levels of instability, that God will give us wisdom as to how we negotiated on the ground. After all, and this is where I'm going to close in prayer. By nature, you and I are no better than any of the other people that are going through these precarious things around the world. We are no better and we don't deserve any better. That we are not experiencing blackouts and invasions and disruption. It's only the sovereignty of God in his own choice not to let it happen. But it could easily happen here the way the structures are set up, okay? And, and this will take us back to the question that I raised a few weeks ago. Are you ready for something like that? You see what I'm saying? All right, let me close this in prayer so we can get out of here. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for the saints who came out. Thank you for the saints who are watching. Uh, thank you for giving us a desire to know what your word says prophetically. Uh, thank you for giving us a desire to understand where we are in our time so that we can be ready to speak to men and women authentically and in, in an informed way. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.